Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Sullivan. Today on the program, Quarantine Canadians. We have 213 uh, Canadians which have been uh, repatriated in Canada. Uh, and um, we will send a, a second plane to make sure that we can bring everyone who wants to come back home. More than 200 Canadians are finally back from the coronavirus epicenter in China. They're now in quarantine at a military base. When will the rest of the Canadians be repatriated? And why did the evacuation effort take so long? And when will Iran compensate the families of Canadians killed on that downed Ukrainian Airlines flight? The Foreign Affairs Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne joins us for an in-depth conversation. And then, mind games. It's a very important project, clearly, and the, the government will have something to say by the end of February. When will the Trudeau government give the green light to a massive new mine in Alberta? If they say yes, will it destroy their environmental goals? If they say no, will it alienate the West? Jim Carr, the Prime Minister's special representative for the Prairies, is here on the difficult decision ahead. Plus, Indigenous activist Pam Palmiter and Alberta MP John Barlow join us on the Scrum to debate the battle over the Trans Mountain Pipeline and the ballooning costs. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. So hundreds of Canadians have finally now returned from the coronavirus-stricken Chinese city of Wuhan. They will now spend the next two weeks in quarantine at a military base in Ontario, CFP Trenton, before they're allowed to go home. And more Canadians are set to come home this week on the next plane. All this comes, though, more than a week after countries like the United States and the UK started getting their own citizens out. Why the long delay? Did Canada take the threat of coronavirus seriously enough at the beginning? and have tensions with China made the evacuation more complicated. To find out, I met with the Foreign Affairs Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne at his headquarters just down the street. Mr. Champagne, great to have you here. Thanks Thank you for having me, I appreciate it. Uh, let's, where we are right now, you've got about 213 Canadians. Yes. Give us a sense of their journey home and what they're now going through in quarantine. So we had uh, what we call the first Canadian flights, 174 passengers left Yuan, uh, stopped in Vancouver for refueling, and then went to Trenton, and now they're currently in Trenton. Uh, we had also secured 39 seats on a U.S. flight, uh, which went from Yuan, refueled in Vancouver, and in Vancouver, we transferred them onto a civilian plane to bring them to Trenton. So now we have about, we have 213 Canadians. That's about two-thirds of the Canadians who had asked us initially to be repatriated. And now they're going to the quarantine period, which we, we had indicated. Uh, we're going to have a second Canadian plane because um, one of the positive things is having a bit of time in between. It's allowing us to make sure we can contact everyone who wants to come back because, as you know, we need to provide the manifest 24 hours before uh, departure. So we're going to be contacting all the other families. And the numbers have been changing. You saw throughout the week because we have people who decided finally not to come. And we always have... 20% no-show. This is consistent with the Japanese and other nations which have repatriated. Um, and now what we're focusing on, we have two emergency teams in Wuhan to provide consular services for those who are going to remain. And, and obviously the next flight we need to organize. So the plane lands uh, and then gets the manifest and then turns around and picks up the rest of the Canadians. You, the question that you've been asked a lot, and I just want to get into it, is why it took m longer than about seven other countries, uh, eight or nine days after the Americans got almost everyone out on a bigger plane. And the question is, 
even though Canadians didn't register, I don't know about you, but I've never registered with the embassy when I travel. And, and let's be candid, it's not something Canadians do. Should you have proactively anticipated the need for a plane, knowing there are hundreds of Canadians there, and just got the plane nine days ago? So let me give you a sense of perspective. The first U.S. plane was a plane repatriating consular officials from Wuhan under the Vienna Convention, their family and few Americans. Um, for them, they took about seven, eight days to get the authorizations to land. That was exactly the first plane. And if you look at, for example, the Japanese, the Japanese knew that they had big manufacturing facilities in Wuhan, which had a lot of people. The three steps you have when you assess what to do in an emergency situation, first was to assess, obviously, the needs. And as you said, we are very pleased that Canadians are registering in, in greater numbers to our website because it's a voluntary registration. When we started that, we had two Canadians who had indicated right. that they wanted to be repatriated. That spiked to 150, I think it was around January 27. At that point, we said we need to charter a plane. We did that, and the third element was to make sure we got the permits and we organized the ground logistics. So you don't think you underestimated the severity of the growing crisis? Because that, not that people haven't been working very hard since, but the, every day you wait, the numbers go up, the complexities go up, as you know, it just becomes more and more difficult by the day because things are getting worse, not better. Did you underestimate the severity of things? I would say we have been, and with the civil service and all the people we had, the moment we saw the numbers, we reacted appropriately in a measured way because obviously you need to tailor your response with the number of people who wants to come. And as you've seen throughout the week, we have people who decided to stay. Uh, they prefer for us to provide them consular assistance. The biggest part of the operation is actually the ground logistics because from the moment someone leaves their residence to basically the airport, you may have like 20 checkpoints. We need to provide the manifests from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, but imagine this needs to flow down to almost the police officer in front of your door in the streets where you live and making sure that people can actually get to the airport. That was the most complex part of the operation. Two other things. Um, people don't appreciate, Canada's not obliged to repatriate, but we've decided to. In the past, outside of the uh, repatriation and the evacuation in Lebanon, Canadians were actually charged by the government to come home. Has your government considered asking any Canadian who's being repatriated to pay any part of that travel as is actual Canadian policy? So from day one, the, the Prime Minister set the tone. Uh, the first thing we had is everything we could do to help these people. And I would say what distinguished this situation to others, Evan, is that the people are actually in a quarantine area. Right. So in a sense, they have no commercial means to get out of the quarantine area because uh, the airport is in lockdown, the streets are in lockdown. So we said under those circumstances, like pretty much every country in the international community, we said we need to fly in. There, there's no way for people right. to get out. At the same time, you saw me probably over the week advising Canadians who are in China on non-essential travel to seek commercial means to come back to Canada. Because clearly this case was very exceptional where, where people could not just get out of the area and we needed to bring them home. The Liberals' new ambassador to China, Dominic Barton, was at a committee and he said relations are strained. In a sense, the blinding restatement of the obvious. We all know how bad relationship between China and Canada is. Has, and I know you're working closely with Chinese officials on this and we've got, as you say, two-thirds of the Canadians out. But how, has the difficult relationship with China made this more difficult and more complex and maybe caused the delay? At no point. I'll be very transparent to Canadian. At the moment we started to stage the operation, I'll give you a sense of perspective. When I asked to speak to my 
uh, counterpart, the foreign minister in China, uh, we got a call within 12 hours and we spoke for 40 minutes. In international standards, that's very quick to get considering the, the size and the magnitude of what they have to deal with. We wanted to extract about 300 people. They have 1.2 billion people to deal with in a health emergency. So I would say from day one, they appreciated uh, Canada's needs and we have been working and we got the visas on time. Uh, we get the permit to land. The first delay that you saw, you know, where we said, it was because we had too much crosswind to take off, it had nothing to do with the authorization. Then we missed the window and the staging operation in China, so for people to understand, countries of the international community can only land during the night because during the day the airspace is used by the People Liberation I get that, Army. But there's no pushback. You're saying nope. that with all the strain, nope. nothing. Nothing. Nothing, okay. nothing that was visible been, to me or officials. No, and there has been no cross-pollination about the situation with the... Well, I did raise the case of the Michaels because every time I speak you to did. the... Oh, I did. So you're talking about the coronavirus evacuation and, and you totally, mentioned... Totally, and I will always do that. Okay, and what I've did even they say asked, on that? Well, I, I restated Canadian position that this was the first and foremost priority for the Canadian government, that we want the release of Michaels uh, Covering and Michaels Pavreau. We also want clemency for Mr. Schallenberg. Uh, and, and we will continue to do that. Every single opportunity well, I have. What did they say? Well, they listened. They understood that this was our first priority. They also raised the case of Miss Mang, as you would expect. And, and we've agreed even to try to meet when we're going to be in Munich in about a week. So, so uh, is it fair to say that the, because of the very um, ongoing communication over coronavirus, you've had better communication? Do you think you've moved the ball down the field on the two Michaels? I would say that because we're pursuing, for example, what I've called health diplomacy, um, that this is giving us the more contact point we can have with the Chinese authorities, I would say the better to get to a resolution of the cases of the Michael. So an unanticipated consequence of the communication over coronavirus, you think has helped build some more trust on the two Michaels and move the ball down the field. Well, at least it allows us to talk more often, which every time I have a chance that we can talk about that and make sure that they understand. And I mean, if you look at the spokesperson or the, the readout that the Chinese put, some, some civil service uh, people were telling me this is one of the most positive statement they put in a long time in terms of the cooperation we had on this health emergency. And certainly I'm gonna pursue health diplomacy uh, to make sure we, we achieve the first and foremost priority, which is to get the release of the Michaels. All right, I gotta take a short break. When we come back, I'll talk to Minister Champagne about Canada's pursuit of a seat on the UN Security Council, relationship with China and other key issues. Stay right here with Question Period. Welcome back to Question Period. I'm here with the Foreign Affairs Minister, Francois-Philippe Champagne, as we're talking about a series of ongoing crises, gosh, since you've been since you've been the foreign affairs minister, uh, it's been raining news. I just want a couple more questions on China and the ongoing strain. There's been a lot of people that say, look, though China's cooperated and the WHO, the World Health Organization, have, have praised how China has dealt with the coronavirus, many say if you look at WeChat, which is a very popular social media channel in China, that the Chinese government's not being totally transparent about the actual numbers of people who have coronavirus. Do you trust that government? to tell the truth about the stats on this virus? Well, we certainly trust the information we got from the World Health Organization. We've been working with them since day one. Uh, minister, I do have a call with our G7 health minister. Uh, Dr. Tan, as you know, the uh, uh, 
chief uh, health officer in Canada, is also part of a subgroup of the World Health Organization. So he's really plugged in into everything that's going on there. And we've been relying on science and facts. I mean, uh, Canada has taken an approach which is uh, science-based, fact-based, and we will continue to do so. It's evolving, obviously. If you're asking me, would other measures be uh, warranted? We'll see how things evolve, but the risk to Canadians remain low. All right, you're going to go to Africa and join the Prime Minister on his trip there. He hasn't said much about this. Everyone knows Canada's in pursuit of a seat on the UN Security Council. The question is, why do we need it? I know there's symbolic value, and Justin Trudeau used to say a lot, Canada's back, but back for what? What would Canada use that seat if we won four? Well, that's the biggest table you can be on the world, on the UN Security Council. Um, based on my discussions and interaction with leaders around the world, uh, people want that positive voice. They want that transatlantic voice. Canada is the G7, is G20, is La Francophonie, it's Commonwealth, is NATO, is NORAD. People want a country like that at the seat at the table to be able to represent uh, their interests. Well, why uh, do we deserve? I mean, look at Norway and Ireland also want the seat. If you look at the gross uh, national income of Norway, they, for, on foreign aid alone, they put what? 0.94%? Uh, We're 0.28%. I mean, they are way ahead of us. Ireland, per capita, contributes more to uh, peacekeeping than we do. We used to, So this notion that Canada's back and we deserve it, why do we deserve it when other countries are doing more per capita? I'll tell you the answer, impact. Uh, it's not about the numbers, it's about the impact. I was in Mali recently, yeah. and I brought with me the RCMP commander, which is a woman. And I was with the Under Secretary General and the commander of MINUSMA, which is the International Peacekeeping Force. They said, Minister, the greatest contribution of Canada is to have the commander, which is a female commander of the RCMP. We're bringing what they call proximity policing. They said what Canada has brought is changing how the United Nations are doing with, things. Sir, with all due respect, yeah. you finished the one-year mission in Mali, and then they wanted you to extend, and you guys pulled out. You well, could have stayed. What we did was the airlift. You know, what was the, the issue was about right. the Chinook, which was doing the medical evacuation. But... In addition, in MINUSMA, we have Canadian forces, but we also have a number of police officers. What I'm saying to you, Evan, is that everywhere I've been, people say the greatest impact is what the Canadians have been doing. Are I've been in the desert, for example, in Egypt. That's the MFO mission. Yeah. We have a small contingent, but every officer we have is having a leadership position. I'd rather have 20, 30 officers there than having 300 which are doing like the base security but, but no because we have impact. But no one's knocking the, the impact or the, or the good work of Canada's men and women. The question is, once you get on that security council, you've got to look, you're going to sit beside the permanent members like the Chinese. Are you going to talk to them about the two and a half million Uyghurs who are in essentially, quote, concentration camps? Are you going to talk to the Russians who have a permanent veto, who have invaded Crimea? Some people say this is an irrelevant body right now that is, in fact, not helping to solve problems, and Canada wants it for political reasons, not for practical reasons. There are I better would, ways to make an impact. I would disagree with that, okay. because you know what it forced? It forced the P5 to talk to you. It's the other way around, because then the Chinese and the Russians know that you will have, because it's a rotating presidency. And if you look in the history of Canada, when we had a seat on the UN Security Council, we could impose our agenda. We could bring things to the table which have made a difference to the world. Oh, yeah, Lloyd Axworthy. Exactly. I, listen, I understand And this that. is a great way to what do a, it. Is it, a, is it a black eye for us if we don't get it? I would say whatever happened at the end, we will have increased the profile of Canada around the world. Okay. Let me talk about Iran. Because when you, that was a huge issue, obviously. The Iranians shot down that plane. When will the families of the victims 
expect con compensation from Iran? So there's three things remaining. Uh, the first one was about the black boxes. You may have seen me yeah. this week. Uh, last week, I went with uh, Minister Garneau. We went to see the leadership of ICAO, the International Civil Aviation Organization, because as you know, under Annex 13, which is the annex for those watching, which regulates what happened when you have a, a crash, an air disaster, says that the black box need to be downloaded and analyzed within, without delay. Clearly, after a month, we're saying to the Iranian, it's obvious now that you don't have either the technical capability or the expertise to do it, so the black box needs to go to Paris without delay. Uh, with respect to the compensation, I had a call with the Iranian foreign minister earlier this week, and I raised these two issues. We need the compensation from the airline. That's statutory, and I've been talking to the CEO of Ukrainian Airlines to make sure that that payment is made without delay to the victims of the, uh, to the families of the victims. And in addition to that, uh, there also need to be state compensation because when you assume full responsibility, that comes with consequences. But when? They barely give it us the black box. When can we expect well, compensation? What we've done is that you saw we've created in Canada's chairing the International Coordination and Response Group. Uh, that includes Sweden, Ukraine, Afghanistan, yeah. and uh, the United Kingdom. And what we've done, we've done a subgroup of lawyers looking at that. And the Iranians have appointed a special representative to deal with us on this issue. So I would expect negotiation to start uh, in the near future. Will Canada consider reopening its embassy in Tehran in order to facilitate consular relations that might help compensate the victims? Will you reopen that embassy? You know, with Iran, I don't, I just, I, I don't judge them by their words, but by their action, and I judge them day by day. So my approach to that has been, we're gonna go step by step. Uh, we had consular access, we got the remains of the body, that part went well, but you know we're going to judge Iran step by step. So let's see how things are going in the other fields, and we can take a decision when we come to that. All right, I got to leave it there, Minister. Great to see you. Thank you. you. It's always a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you. All right, coming up, the politics of disaster planning. How has the government handled the crisis? You've heard from the foreign affairs minister, but was the government too slow bringing Canadians home? And then, is Peter McKay stumbling as the so-called front-runner in the Conservative leadership race? The Scrum is here next to talk about that, and our special guest, CTV pollster Nick Nanos. Stay right here with Question Period. We're taking careful measures to minimize the risks to Canadians here at home, but also to protect the health of Canadians who are returning. So the number of Canadians sick with coronavirus keeps growing. More cases were announced on Friday out of British Columbia. They've got the virus from visitors from Wuhan in China. Uh, Canadians have also gotten sick on a cruise ship off the coast of Japan. Now they've got hundreds of Canadians who have returned home from China at CFB Trenton. Could these numbers start spiking? How has the government handled the crisis and the complex relationship with China? To talk about that, and also the Conservative leadership race, the scrum is here. Stephanie Levitz, a reporter with the Canadian Press. Tana McCharles, senior reporter with the Toronto Star. Bob Fife is the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Globe and Mail. And our special guest this round is the President and CEO of Nanos Research, Nick Nanos. Good to see everybody here. All right, uh, let me just start with you, Nick. I mean, this has been ongoing. Uh, the Foreign Affairs Minister has had first juggled the Iran situation 
now this situation, how have they handled it? Does this make a dent in sort of competence of the government? Well, not yet, because right now Canadians are on tender hooks. They don't know what this means in terms of uh, health risk. They're going to wait to see whether things get better or worse. And I think the jury's still out in terms of whether the government is doing a good job or not. Bob, there was a lot of uh, questions about why the delay, why the delay. The, the government keeps saying, look, people didn't register. They have a series of explanations. What do you make look, of that? Uh, that doesn't fly. When people go to other countries, few people register that they're going to be in that country. So I don't, I don't agree with that assessment. I think that's an excuse for the fact that they were slow off the mark. They thought they could get Canadians out of other uh, uh, countries' aircraft. That didn't happen. They finally got a chartered aircraft, and then another one, and we've, we've got them out now. Uh, so, but I did think they were slow off the mark, uh, but they we're getting the Canadians out now. I will give them credit for this. Uh, Mr. Champagne has, and the health minister have had daily briefings to keep Canadians yeah. informed, and they deserve a lot of credit for that because it's a lot of fear out there, yeah. and you 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 counter fear by giving people information that's accurate. Now, I don't think that there's any question that it, 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 it certainly to the families affected, it felt slow for Canada to respond, but I accept the explanation that they had no clue, but they ought to have understood that the numbers would quickly escalate. And furthermore, that virus is spreading, the outbreak is not yet under control. So I think we can anticipate that other provinces, other cities are under lockdown, there will be greater calls for help by Canadian citizens elsewhere in China. And what's the government gonna do there? They've got 15,000 Canadians registered in China right now. So even though, and that's only, I'm sure, a fraction of the Canadians there. I mean, part of the problem too has to be that the government has is, is running two tracks almost at the same time, right? You have the health minister and, and the public health agency out every day saying, yeah. please don't panic. Please don't panic, this is fine, please don't panic, wash your hands, take precautions, not a panic. And then you have a bunch of Canadians in China, what are they doing? Panic. And they want out. And so the government has to orchestrate a response to that that is seen as calm, controlled and measured and not responding to panic when in fact there is panic. People are very, very concerned. And how do, how do they juggle that with the need? If, it, if it's not as severe as the public health agency wants to tell us to be calm, wash your hands, but they're evacuating people, that's two different messages being Except sent at the exact the same time. Message, the Canadian government's message is consistent with the World Health Organization's assessment. And they do have people on the ground and they have taken the view, at least, that China's being diligent in its efforts to quarantine this, to contain the outbreak. So Canada's message is in line with that. Some other countries aren't. Um, like for my money, you know, we're, I, I, we're not experts. So I think mm -hmm. that, you know, I, I'm listening to what the WHO is saying on that for now until there's but, evidence but there are, that it's are, not But there are a lot control. of uh, questions raised in serious publications like the New York Times about how China is actually handling this, that the numbers are... Uh, the numbers of, of people who have died from it are much higher, that the numbers of people yeah. who have infected it is much higher, and that, the, uh, that they don't have enough masks, yeah. that medical workers and doctors are being affected by this, and that the putting people in these quarantines yeah. are actually, uh, quarantined areas are actually not that effective. So we're not sure where this is going. Yeah. Right. And, and I did ask the Foreign Affairs Minister yeah. if he trusted Chinese numbers, but it's interesting, Nick, at this moment, Foreign Affairs is dominating, or certainly a big part of the, the Trudeau agenda. You got the relationship with China and this, complicated by the two Michaels who are in prison there. You got the Prime Minister and Champagne will follow him in Africa, trying to win a seat on the, US, the UN Security Council. 
How does all this, how important is this for the perception of this government? Getting that seat on the UN Security Council, solving the two, getting the two Michaels home? Well, usually from a polling perspective, foreign policy is not a big vote driver unless it connects to people's day-to-day -day lives. So this, the virus, right, that people are dealing with and the health scare actually could move the numbers for the Liberals if they're seen as doing a good, prudent, reasonable job at trying to manage this. When we get to the UN, you know, with all respect, I don't think we really have a chance to kind of do well in that at this particular round because it's too little, too late, and I'm not sure if Canada's, Canadians really care about that as much as they do about the coronavirus. They also cared about how the government handled the Iran cr plane crash, right? And I think that the government was seen in that crisis, a foreign policy crisis that touched a lot of Canadians' people, lives, absolutely. right? And people gave them kudos for that. Uh, one of the, the best things that's come out of this, I mean, it's a terrible si situation, the coronavirus, but they're talking now. Our yeah. foreign affairs minister and our Chinese counterparts are talking. Uh, the ambassador, uh, our Chinese ambassador, to, uh, um, Dominic Barton, was at a committee the other day, and he was saying initially when he goes into meetings, it's chilly, but they're starting to break down that uh, the real uh, chill that's going on in the relation. Right. The more they talk, the better it is for us yeah. to have get those relationship yeah. better on the foot. Same thing with Iran. I mean, right. for what that's worth, right? We have even mm. less consular access, consular presence, and diplomatic relationships with Iran. And there's also been doors that have been opened there to, to varying. Well, what we're not success. talking about is how this health contagion could be an mm. economic contagion. You know, if the, something south happens in terms of the Chinese economy, it will have a knock-on effect for all the major economies around true. the world. We could be dealing with a potential recession if China slows down as it tries to manage this problem. Uh, you, that's the biggest story to watch. Okay, let me quickly turn to the conservative leadership race. Bob, let me start with you. Uh, first, uh, Peter McKay is supposedly, you know, seen as a front runner. He had that je sera candidate, which is essentially announced himself as a female candidate. Uh, then he had the walkout on the CTV interview. Then he tweeted that he's going to not move the embassy in Israel to, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Then he would. Is his campaign stumbling out of the block here? Oh yeah, he's he's stumbling almost every day, um, and it's not going to get any better unless he he gets himself under control and gets better people with him. Uh, now the conservatives are frightened about the fact that here's this front runner who could be Mr. Stumblebum, and they're now trying to get John Baird to uh, come out and run. I mean, Baird is a very experienced politician. He's more bilingual than certainly Peter McKay is. He's charming, he's tough, and he's one of these guys that can bring, uh, that can unite the coalition, uh, the conservative coalition together. And he, if he runs, which I, uh, they're trying to get him to do, if he runs, he'll beat Peter McKay. So Peter McKay has to be very yeah. worried about this guy running. What do you think? Well, I, I, I agree that Peter McKay has shown the folly of any politician just thinking that, you know, this is a, an easy cakewalk. He is rusty. His political skills are poor. His antenna is off. He's not familiar with party policy. So you don't, no one gets handed this thing. And he so far isn't showing that he's earned it. Um, and I think the more ex existential question for the party is they actually don't have a lot of their best and brightest and heavy hitters out there in that race. So. Yeah. And, and that's definitely worrying them, I think, to Bob's point. I mean, one of the things that's been interesting to watch is the number of times now since, you know, it was clear Peter McKay was running, since Aaron O'Toole was running, 
it's not like that stopped the train. It's not that people said, okay, let's let that play out. It's not satisfactory to the folks in caucus. It's not satisfactory to the grassroots memberships of the party. So that's where you're getting both, you know, everyone from John Baird on the, on the one hand to John Williamson, a New Brunswick MP on the other, who are being pushed out of the woodwork, Michelle Rumpel-Garner, another person. The, the folks, what I hear on Parliament Hill are restive. They don't like the way the leadership race is shaping up because it's not just about the leadership race, right? It's about that building. It's about 24 Sussex. It's about becoming prime minister. If their leadership yeah. candidate fumbles this entire campaign, all that stuff remains on the and, public and, record. And Quebec and boom. is not happy either. The Quebec Conservative Caucus is not happy. Quebec yeah. Conservatives are not happy. They don't have a strong person there's, coming there's forward only, yet. So. There's only one lens that Canadians have when they're looking at Peter McKay right now as a front runner. Is he a prime minister in waiting? And every time his team lets him down, and every time he has a mistake, he basically defeats himself. It's kind of like those elections. We say governments defeat themselves. Yeah. Well, front runners defeat themselves, and, and that's is, what he's got to do. Time is running out here because you have to raise three hundred thousand dollars by the end of the month and have all these uh, um, people signed up with something like three thousand people that's not an easy thing to do so if they want to get John Baird into this game he's got to get in yeah. real early I don't know if John Baird comes into my sources say he probably won't John Williams's taxpayer federation trying to scoop up those Western Harper conservatives really and Aaron and Aaron O'Toole had 32 uh, MP supporting him last time two right now so that says something there so We'll find out. All right, I got to take a break now. Nick Nanos, great to have you here. The rest of the scrum's going to be back a little later in the show, but coming up is a huge mining project in Alberta, a political landmine for Justin Trudeau. The massive decision to approve this new mine could be a lose-lose. What will the government do? The Prime Minister's point person from the West, Jim Carr, joins us next. Stay right here with Question Period. So if they approve it, it might destroy their environmental goals. If they reject it, it might alienate the West. This is the challenge facing the Liberal government on something called the Tech Frontier Mine. It's an open-air mine that would cover roughly double the size of the city of Vancouver. It would produce up to 260,000 barrels of oil a day when it gets fully built. And the decision on this has to come by the end of the month. So what will the government do? All that comes as the battle over the Trans Mountain Pipeline continues. Costs to build it are soaring. Will the government be able to build it and sell it to pay back the public? Let's find out. Joining us now is the Prime Minister's Special Representative for the Prairies in the West, Jim Carr. Uh, great to have you back on the program. And I want to start with this Tech Frontier Mining Project, sir. Uh, Liberal MP Nathaniel Erskine-Smith told the Huffington Post that if your government approves the mine, you will betray the commitment to net zero emissions by 2050. He basically says you've got to reject it. Will the government reject the mine? Well, there are all kinds of opinions on how the government should act in this case, and uh, that's fair enough. Uh, there are people who will be on many sides of the argument. It's up to the government to make a decision that we believe to be in the national interest, and then there's the balance, as always, between environmental stewardship, our international obligations, our stated policy goal of zero emissions by 2050, and the imperative of job creation. We all know that there are many families in Alberta who are having a very tough time right now. Oil prices, the downturn in the energy economy has resulted in real hardship. So this is the balance. We are elected to make complex decisions, and that's what we will do. So 
the key is okay first on the environmental goals because this 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 mine if you approve it and it's built could operate for 40 years 260,000 uh, barrels a day of bitumen. The joint review panel studying it said it would have significant adverse environmental effects on wetlands, old growth forests, uh, old growth reliant species, and it would produce 4.1 million tons of CO2 equivalent a year. How can you approve right. something like that and call yourselves environmentalists? Well, it depends on what the big picture looks like. It depends on the capacity of the company. Uh, to get to zero emissions by 2050, which is a stated goal. Uh, it depends on a variety of factors. It depends on the approval of other projects, many of which have not yet become economic. So there are an awful lot of elements in the mix, and it's the task of the cabinet to weigh all of those elements and come up with a decision that at the same time understands the importance of maintaining our goals, make sure that we're on track, but cognizant of the very important economic benefit uh, that this project would engender, not only for Alberta, by the way, and that's something that many Canadians understand, that the health of the Alberta economy, the health of the energy sector, is not only important for the province of the Prairie region, but has impacts on the entire Canadian economy, and not only that, also our international brand. So those are the right. elements that are in play. No decision has been taken yet, and the government is uh, obviously taking an awful lot of time and effort to understand all of the elements of the decision. Right. But I'm confident that when the decision is taken, it will be a decision that in a considered way is in Canada's interests. But here's the thing. On both on the tech frontier, and let me move to the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion, which the government, remember, they bought that pipeline for $4.5 billion. They were supposed to go, yeah. to build it was supposed to be $7.5 billion. Now we're closing in on $13 billion. And people wonder, both on tech frontier and on this, is this all an indictment of your government's once, what you talked in a vaunted way about the approval process, things take so long, you keep kicking the can down the road, that you essentially consult these things to death so they're economically unviable. Is all that an indictment? Well, there are all kinds of people who are very quick to want to indict the government. There are uh, an awful lot of other people who realize uh, that the government is seeking a balance, and I think that the balance is where most Canadians want us to be. Most Canadians want us to be able to take our natural resources and export them somewhere other than the United States, where 99% of our exports in energy go. They want us to be able to take this valuable resource, move it to export markets, to take the profit from this resource to help finance the transformation and the transition to a greener economy. And by the way, a lot of the leadership of that transition is coming from the oil sector itself that understands that we're moving towards renewable sources of energy. Meanwhile, we have caps on greenhouse gas emissions, we have markets that we want to right. be able to access. The Trans Mountain expansion will get us to those markets. Yes, there has been price inflation as a result of delays. You say checking all the boxes. Uh, the courts told us we had to go back and do it again. We did it again. It took time. We now have the ruling from the Federal Court of Appeal. And construction is fully apace, and that's the way right. it should be. 
This project is important for Alberta and for Canada. It will be built. It will open up more export markets for energy, and that's important for Alberta and for all of Canada. Last question. Can, now that the cost has ballooned towards $13 billion, Jim Carr, can you promise Canadians that those costs will be recouped, that your government will not only build this thing, but be able to find a buyer to foot the bill and pay back the public who bought the pipeline? Yes, I think all of that is a reasonable assessment of where we're at with the construction, where we're at in the marketplace, ultimately to sell the pipeline as we said we would. Uh, I believe that it's an economic project. And I believe that with other good news coming from the United States on the Enbridge Line 3, that pipeline capacity is growing, the pressures will be reduced, uh, the prices will rise, uh, which will be a very good sign for our investors, and most importantly, offer hope for those working in the energy sector uh, that times will be better than they have been. The Government of Canada is your partner and we will work together to find the balance that's right for Alberta, for the prairies, and for Canada. We are all looking forward to seeing this decision on the tech frontier and more news on this. Jim Carr, I really appreciate you joining us this morning. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Coming up, more on the pipeline politics, a huge court win for the pipeline proponents, but will some Indigenous groups still fight to stop TMX? And as we just talked about, the tech mine trap, what's the answer for the Liberal government? The Scrum is back. Special guest Pam Palmiter and Conservative MP John Barlow drop in. Stay right here with Question Period. There is a decision to be made and I think we have some clear principles that uh, we're working from, which is both uh, the uh, making sure that we do what's needed to have a strong economy in Canada and good jobs and uh, tackle climate change and meet or exceed our targets. Some big decisions ahead for Justin Trudeau, but maybe big trouble. Look, costs are ballooning for the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. The government announced on Friday it will cost over $5 billion more than it had first estimated. That's about $13 billion now. Can the government bear the cost? How will they find a buyer for it? And then another frontier. Does the government now need to greenlight a controversial new oil sands project, an open-air mine, roughly twice the size of the city of Vancouver? If it ever gets built, it would produce 260,000 barrels of oil a day. But how would the Liberal government ever hope to reach their goal of net zero emissions by 2050 or hit their Paris targets? Difficult decisions, so I can't sort it out. That's why the scrum's here. Tony McCharles usually has the answer, so does Bob Fife. Our special guest this round, the chair of the Indigenous Governance at Ryerson University, Pam Palmiter, and Alberta Conservative MP John Barlow. Great to have everyone here. Uh, let's start with TMX, and, and boy, there's lots of news here, Pam Palmiter. Federal Court of Appeal said uh, First Nations Aboriginal groups do not have a veto. They were properly consulted. Is the fight against TMX over? It's clearly not over. Uh, you had the First Nations involved in this particular case already give a press conference saying they're uh, applying for leave to appeal to Supreme Court of Canada, as well as other actions. And other First Nations and other environmental groups are now also contemplating other and additional actions. You've seen the nationwide protests across the country, so this isn't just about what's happening here in TMX. And we know that um, there's 
already been conflict on the ground in terms of Wet'suwet'en territory, one of uh, Trans Mountain subsidiaries. There will be in Shwetmik territory. This this is by no means over. No, and I think that it's it's clear. I mean, First Nations play a long game on all of this. They will. I, I anticipate that those decisions, that decision, will be appealed. And look, there's there's a solidarity building, and we've seen this in waves uh, in Canadian history before. But there's a solidarity building, as Pam said, among other First Nations in the country because that decision actually was basically said they don't get a veto on these projects. And so then what does free prior and informed consent mean anyway? And the whole the government is now focused very much on that effort. They promised legislation to move projects like this forward, uh, but to accommodate the indigenous concerns. But we've already seen blockades in the biggest passenger corridor in the country right. uh, going into the weekend. So I, I see this continuing and being a huge headache. But Bob, the court was pretty clear. They said consultation does not yeah. mean a veto. Okay. Otherwise, you can consult any project to death. Look, the, the Supreme Court has said the same thing, that we have to properly consult First Nations, but they do not have a veto. And we have seen in uh, the TMX that it was the result of consultations that brought about the changes uh, in uh, not only along the, the waterfront, but also along the route. So consultations do make a big difference. The next step, though, I think if we're going to uh, seriously involve First Nations in these kind of projects is we need to get, they need to have an ownership stake in TMX. I think that if they, get, if they can see some of the, the uh, economic benefits from getting our resources to market, that, I think, takes away a lot of the edge against an opposition. Uh, John, John Barr, let me just bring you in. I mean, now the price of the TMX is ballooning from it was originally $4.5 billion. Now we're closer to $13 billion. Is that, in, in your mind, A, do we get our money back, but is that an indictment of this whole process to get these projects approved? Yeah, absolutely. Let's, let's look back. This was a, a private sector project, so this, this shouldn't be taxpayers' dollars being built to build TMX in the first place. This would have been Kinder Morgan using private sector dollars. The taxpayer would not be on the hook for this. Let's be honest, it would have been very difficult to find a private sector buyer for TMX once the Trudeau government stepped in and bailed them out. Um, and now the costs ballooning, we said this from the beginning, when they, uh, the Trudeau government admitted or said they were going to buy this pipeline, that the costs were going to be well beyond the $4.5 billion. So they said $4.5 originally to buy it, then another 7 to build it, but now it's up to what? $12.6 billion. Yeah. $12.6 yeah. And I think, I think that that cost was always low-balled. So I think that a lot of people who followed that file expected that cost to balloon. The legal fight has added tremendously to the costs. Um, but I disagree that there won't be any private sector buyer for this. And I think Bob's right that already Jason Kenney and Justin Trudeau have committed, <coughs> Bill Morneau, the finance minister, have committed to helping Indigenous communities buy an equity stake in it. So one day or one way or another, once that thing gets going, I think there will okay, be buyers. That, but Pam Palmer, uh, Jason Kenney keeps making the case. He goes, there's 129 First Nations along that route. Most of them support this thing. So shouldn't you listen to the majority on these things? It's completely irrelevant. In law, that's irrelevant. Each First Nation has their own Aboriginal rights under the Constitution, and it doesn't matter if there's a thousand First Nations in a different area, in a different context, that say, okay, if one says no, they have the right to say no. Okay, but the question is, is that a veto? All right, let me just quickly go to the tech frontier mine, uh, and I'll start with you. You're no. from Alberta. <coughs> you know, the government, they got this rocket heart. If they approve it, environmentalists will go crazy. If they reject it, Alberta is going to go crazy. What's the answer here? 
Well, I think the answer is approve it. The joint uh, assessment said that this meets all the criteria. It's environmentally safe. We have 14 First Nations signed on. And we were talking about having First, Na First Nations ownership. Well, that's going to happen with this tech mine. So this ticks all of the boxes. Now, let's be very clear. The joint uh, assessment was done in July. They gave it the green light and met all the criteria. Now it's a political decision. But it did say, to be fair, it said there's going to be massive environmental consequences. The joint review panel did not sugarcoat that. But it also said that those not building this could have more environmental impact because those, emit, those resources would be displaced by other countries that don't develop their resources to the same environmental standards as Canada. You know, we're, we're all talking to people in the PMO and the Liberal Party, Liberal caucuses, Trump beats are against this. The, the Prime Minister's office, if you talk to the senior officials, they're pouring cold water on it. They're saying this project may never get built. It's $20 billion. It's going to add uh, more megatons to the, uh, to the in, in emissions. And that it's just not, a, it's, it's not something that the government is comfortable with doing. So what I think they're going to do is put a lot of conditions on this. And, and the, the question will be, how does Alberta and, and Saskatchewan react and how does the foreign uh, international investors react to a decision like so, this? So I think that what's interesting to figure out where that ball's going and one of the boxes that the project doesn't tick yet is the economic viability of it. The company itself is already hinting that this is a problem even without all the conditions we might expect. So even if the government at this point says we're going to hold off, the company itself has signaled right. A little bit of a, an off ramp for they're the saying government. Maybe seven they're years. saying maybe seven, but eight years, right? So, so th how does how does Alberta and how do the people who propose that project and say Justin Trudeau has to do it our way or the highway? How do they get around that if the company itself is questioning the uh, value of it at this point? Well, that that's not Justin Trudeau's decision to make. He, we have have the pathway to approve it under the environmental assessment that is done. It's up to tech to decide whether it wants to build it or not. That should not be a decision of the Liberal government and the cabinet to make the decision, does tech have the financial wherewithal to build this I'm or not? I'm guessing that they might factor that into their political uh, decision. Well, Pam, Pam, well, I know. Is it a, they, an environmental decision or, or a political one? Uh, Pam Palmer, what's your view on how the Liberal government's got to calibrate approval or rejection of this project? Well, look, their tactic for Trans Mountain was to buy it to defeat First Nation interests at all. So what are they going to do? Buy Tech Mine? They really need to look at their overall national economic strategy. They're racing, literally diving to the bottom of an industry whose bottom is falling out. There's economists who are saying the oil industry and, and all of the associated industries could collapse in as early as 10 years, yet they're making economic predictions around 20 and 30 years, not even to you know, include the fact that we've got this impending tidal wave of climate change happening, and you can't ignore that. So on an economic front, First Nation front, and climate change front, none of these projects make any sense when you have other countries worldwide doing 100% renewable. Why aren't we investing in tech and renewable? I'll give you just a quick last word on that, John. Yeah, I think uh, as much as I respect Pam, I think she's being uh, disingenuous. Every study that we've seen is, is the demand for fossil fuels is going to increase for the next 50 to 100 years. Other countries are not going to 100% renewables. And Tech Energy has already announced that they will be net zero uh, emissions by 2050, matching what Prime Minister Trudeau yeah. is saying. So we have done everything we can in Alberta to try and make this work. And I think it's up to, the, to Justin Trudeau to ensure that if unity is really his goal, that he stands up for Alberta in this case. Well, this could be one of those Tech Frontier, Final Frontier moments 
for Justin Trudeau on natural resources, and we'll find out what he does. They've got till the end of February to approve that. i got to leave it there. John Barlow, Pam Palmander, Tonda McCharles, Bob Fife. Always great to see all of you here. Thank all of you for spending part of your Sunday with us on a, well, you can see a pretty snowy day. Politics will warm it up next week. We'll back here in seven short days. Thanks for watching.